the fact that Old World Wines, they, they were made, you remember, a lot of these guys had to go to war. And if the war started in September or August, they picked early. Well, there was so much acid, sometimes so much green pyrazine in the wine, uh, 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 and no alcohol, these wines were unconsumable for 20 years. And so when the fancy British press and the French, oh, this wine is a baby, it needs 20 years. It's just, it's so much bullshit, it's just laughable. You're listening to Everyday Food and Wine, the show about innovators, creators, and experts in the fields of food and wine. I'm Sarah Faraday, and on today's episode, I sit down and speak with the owner of Booker Vineyards, Eric Jensen. We explore the fascinating things going on in the world of wine in Paso Robles, Eric's winemaking style, as well as how you can identify wines that have been manipulated chemically and are untrue to their nature. Paso Robles has largely flown under the radar until more recently, but they're doing some pretty incredible things that this episode will help you discover and definitely make you want to put this special place on your list of wine destinations. I do have to give an explicit language warning for this episode. There is a fair amount of swearing. Eric is a straight shooter and he will be sharing some incredible information with us today that you don't want to miss out on. So please make sure to save this episode for when there aren't kids with an earshot. Eric, thank you so much for joining me today. Cool. I'm excited to be here. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for asking me to join you. Absolutely. Now, you haven't always been involved in the wine industry, right? In fact, it was like kind of a dramatic shift for you. What happened to make you want to leave behind a very successful career and jump into viticulture and winemaking? Well, you know, for, for most modern day people that jump into it, you know, we kind of all did it the same way. Unless you're born into it, um, you know, in your legacy, a lot of us now for the last probably 40 years have just loved wine and loved it so much that they went to the wine country and they're like, oh, shit, this would be such a great lifestyle. I mean, come on, man. It's like, you know, yeah, everyone wants to be a chef when they walk into the French Laundry and they see that center, you know, the island and, and, and all of that. They don't see, you know, the head chef yelling at everybody. But, uh, you know, you get to the winery and you're sitting on the deck of a guest house or whatever and you're in the vines, you're like, oh, my God, I could do this. You don't see the bugs, the heat, uh, you know, snakes, etc. So I just caught the bug at a young age. The first time I actually had wine in San Francisco, you know, I, I didn't grow up with money, so we never had wine. And, and when we did on Thanksgiving, it was out of a box. And so I remember the first time I had it, it was addictive. It was like, oh shit. And from that day on, I'd show up to parties with two bottles of wine. You know, I, I'd show up to parties where, you know, there was drugs and alcohol and everything. And I had two bottles of wine. Oh, I love it. Do you remember what your aha wine was? Because I feel like so many people in the industry have that one bottle that just like that did it, that kind of opened Pandora's box for you. Yeah. And I think they're bullshit, man. So I'm just, <laughs> just so you know a little bit about me, I hate aristocracy when it comes to wine and food, right? So 
Uh, I'm a foodie, of course, when you're in the wine business, uh, and it goes vice versa. Most foodies are also wine junkies. But most of these guys lie. Oh, I had a 68 O'Brien. It's like, man, bullshit. Nobody knew drinking wine is drinking a $1,500 bottle or a $1,000 bottle. I don't know what the wine was. It was Italian. Uh, it was at Bertolucci in South San Francisco, and they were wearing tuxedos. Now, in retrospect, they were probably dirty, old, you know, it, it was a cheap Italian restaurant or, or, you know, not cheap, but it definitely wasn't high end. And I thought, oh, my God, they're wearing tuxedos. And so you could have poured me anything that was just real wine, not this, you know, made of purple sugar shit um, or not in a box. And I was going to go, hell, yeah. So it was an Italian and I immediately fell in love with it. And my whole career, I started drinking, you know, a lot of the affordable Italian wines, like those Decale, those Gold Label, Reserva, uh, 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 the, uh, Gatnara, the Bent Bottle, you know, just those $8 to $12 bottles. And, uh, but no exact label. I don't remember exactly what it was. And I think most of these people are bullshitting you when they aristocratically tell you it was some first growth and all this crap. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh I think that's interesting. I love how down to earth you are with your wines and that's a that's a big thing for you which I I think is fantastic. The name of your winery is is Booker Vineyards. It has a very interesting story. Can you share the reason behind the name? Yeah, you know, so I had lived in uh uh grew up in outside of LA and after college moved to Orange County and when I was in Orange County, I you know, I started earning a good living. And so I lived a pretty, you know, kind of hoity-toity life. I, I was never hoity-toity. It's just not in my blood, but all my neighbors um, and all that, it, it was just, you know, it was a shit show of being looked up and down, what you were driving, what your house looked like. And so when I came, decided to make the jump, I made a, a commitment that I was going to be a farmer. I was going to, you know, live just a more simple life, uh, which unfortunately, you know, always gets complicated. But the, the the trust I bought the piece of property from was the Booker Brothers uh, Family Trust. So I started researching these guys. They didn't drink. They were adopted as strong backs out of Bakersfield when their uh, father was getting older, or I think he had cancer. Mom needed help, so she adopts these two young boys, and they just became Paso's favorite sons. They they everything they did was based on giving back to the community, giving to charity. Uh, uh, a husband would catch cancer or have a stroke and they would farm the land and drop off a bag of cash at the end of the year. Um, just incredible stories of philanthropy and just giving. They're never wanting anything in return, never really buying anything for themselves. And I, I just thought, hey, that's my lifestyle. I need to, I can never get to where they're at because they didn't drink and I'm going to fucking drink a shitload. But, um, and, and, you know, they didn't do a lot of things I do, but their style of life of being honest and everything I heard about them, that's, that's, I wanted to emulate that. And so I thought what better way to, for me to remind myself than to name it after the two brothers, Claude and Dick Booker. Love that. Two of your mentors are set to be guests on future episodes of the podcast as well. Justin of Saxum and Stefan of Lidventure Wines. Can you describe how these two individuals impacted your winemaking style? Well, I'm just going to warn you right now. You're not going to understand a fucking word Stefan says. So just get that out right now. 
<laughs> the Frenchman, I mean, his accent's getting worse, I think, uh, since COVID started. Um, but the, the, I met them for the first time real quick. Justin wasn't a winemaker yet, and he wasn't confident enough to be my winemaker, just my farmer. And he goes, hey, we need to, we need to get Stefan. And so I got great stories about this guy smoking in his dolphin shorts and rolling up windows in the truck while he's smoking and just like choking me out. But they made big wine and I immediately gravitated to texture. Um, even in a lighter style wine, even in a burgundy, I still want texture. Even uh, uh, in my Grenache, I don't like thin and acidic. It's just not my style. There's nothing wrong with it. Remember, it's subjective. Somebody yeah. wants their, their vegetables steamed. Someone wants them grilled. Um, someone wants their steak sous vide. Someone wants it on, on fire. And for me, they made very rich, opulent wines. And that's been my style. Now that style's toned down a little bit for me as I've gotten older. But uh, that was my style. And those were my guys. And, you know, just such unbelievable mentors. And, and really just such unbelievable people, man, that I cherish every time I get to hang with both those guys. Is there any sort of friendly competition between the three of you? Oh, fuck yeah. I mean, you fuck. I, mean, I, I want to beat them at every single thing I do. I don't care if we're playing ping pong. I, I, I want the ball to hit them right on the chin. Um, they were my mentors. Yeah, I want to. But the one thing at the end of the day, we all understand. Uh, I, I remember Justin when, when, when you know, uh, one of the times, the you know, I, I think maybe I outscored him with Parker or something, and he sends me a morning, you know, fuck you, you know, and but he he was proud because he knows I owe so much to him and Stefan, and but at the end of the day, we all know it's subjective, so it's all completely a hundred percent joking. Like people always ask me, well, you know, I really like your Syrah better, and it's like, yeah, yeah at least one person out of fifty thousand probably does, but regardless. I, I always shut that down immediately. It's like, yeah, they're just stylistically different. He's a whole stem guy, uh, whole cluster, and 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 he's got a different touch than I do. He's a freak. And I said, you know, you gravitated maybe to my style, and that's the beauty of wine. And that's how all these family operations are allowed to do what we do, right? Uh, same with family restaurants. People gravitate to our house palate, and that becomes our fan base. So, yeah absolutely competitive, extremely competitive with each other, talk a lot of crap to each other, but love, love more than anything to follow each other's, to be with each other's successes um, and be there for each other. And, and also we fully understand the wines are all different. Love it. Many winemakers in Paso Robles are known as Rhone Rangers. Why that term? And do you consider yourself part of this movement? You know, I'm not in the club. I'm not, a, <laughs> I'm not in the cool guy club uh, because I haven't paid an initiation fee or whatever dues. I don't do, you know, I, I don't really like to be in the organizations and pay these fees all of a sudden, they, you know, I end up, they want you to run for a board seat or this or that. It's like, I, I, I just, it, it's not my gig. Um, and so uh, would I be considered a roan ranger, a kind of a trailblazer in the roans? Kind of, yeah. And when I look back in retrospect on my life, you know, 20 years, um, yeah, that's when John Albin and 
And, and these guys that had done such a great job for Roan Varietals were championing the cause. John being, you know, arguably the biggest, but Manfred Crankle and Sinequinon out there, you know, humping away at it um, and obviously putting it on a, a global map with his, you know, his his scores and, and, and critical acclaim. So, yeah, I was early. Tomless Creek, obviously enormous coming from Bo Castell, partnering with them. So, yeah, I mean, I, I – I guess when people talk about Roan Rangers, they would consider me and Justin Smith of Saxon, Scott Hawley at uh, Torn, but none of us are in the organization. We love Jason Hawes in the organization. I just don't like getting sucked into these things because then I end up focusing more time on outside organizations when I believe I can spend better try- time driving the Paso message uh, in other ways that that aren't diluted because there's 30, 40, 50 members. Absolutely. So I think that that's interesting because so many producers make stellar Cabernet, but I imagine it can be challenging to compete against the Bordeaux or Napa Valley cabs. How would you compare Cabernet from Paso versus a Napa cab? Because you're doing some pretty phenomenal stuff there. But I think that there's definitely um, a, maybe a stigma or maybe a lack of awareness of what's going on in Paso. But how would you how would you compare the two or how would you describe it not even comparing the two if they're if they're drastically different in your opinion well they are they are very different great wine's great wine right it's funny because i just had about 10 napa winemakers here for uh, my buddy juan mercado's 50th birthday napa has a love affair with paso uh, especially the independence because they can see what me and Justin and Stefan have accomplished and they know they can come down here and own their own basically rights, right? Their own intellectual property, their own land. Whereas in Napa, most of them work for some uber wealthy billionaire that, you know, and these guys just want to have the most expensive wine and blah, 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 blah. But it'd be like starting a theme park and trying to compete with Disneyland. It's just, it's such a difficult task because they're a machine, um, and they've, they've continued to build the machine with movies, with, with, with all their content. And so where we'll end up winning, um, and not winning head to head because the machine is so massive. Um, and we got such a late start, but people really like our content. They like our winemakers. They like our farmers. Um, they like the characters and, and they like that they're more real. They're, you know, it's one thing that I love it when these billionaires tell us how to spend our money and the things we should do and how we should give back. And it's, you know, it's, it's great hearing it from people that fly around on 747 private jets. But the beauty of Paso is they listen because most of us started from nothing. And so we're way more in touch than the Valley. And I love the Valley. I'll be there next week. Uh, But we're so much more in touch with reality. And quality wise, you know, listen, it's hard to compete with their Cabernets, right? They're rich, they're opulent, they're higher pH, so they don't have as much acid. Um, But they really struggle to compete uh, and have, have yet to be able to compete with our Syrahs. Uh, uh, Critically, they have never come close um, with Syrah or Grenache. And they don't really grow Mervendra. So um, with Cabernet, 
I believe we have a better chance at competing with their Cabernet than they do our Rhones because the Rhones do so much better in limestone and chalk. The thing about Paso is we have so much more diversity of soil than they do. And we have a lot of clay. And that's how I launched my favorite neighbor in Harvey and Harriet. I was hanging out with Tony Biaggi, legendary uh, guy that launched Plump Jack Cade, No Debt for the Getty family and Gavin Newsom. He's at Hourglass now. And then the Frenchman, Benoit Touquet, uh, who, you know, who's made Realm so great with Juan Mercado, the founder. Um, and when I realized that everything they do was in heavy clay and even their mountain fruit was, that's when we said, holy shit, we need, we need to start leasing or buying up all this clay land that nobody wants for Cabernet. So we can get at an extraordinarily close and high level we just have a little more pop to the wine, right? A little more acid. And I just took way too long. to. So hopefully you edit all that shit out. So <laughs> no, 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 no. I think that's great. That I actually loved that you were talking about that on, on your YouTube too. Like people, they weren't drawn to the clay soil that you were. And that's one of the things that you were, you're very specific about where you get your grapes from or where, you know, the, the soil type of it, what's, how stylistically would that make it different from somebody going after, I guess, a different uh, type of earth to grow their uh, Cabernet in, in Paso? Well, like, like food, right? You want your beef from, you know, high end cows. You know, if you're going to go to, you know, one of these big ranches that like the one off the five freeway by me and the cows grow up two feet from the other cow and mud, um, and, and they don't get the attention and the, and the feed and the level of that feed, right? It's expensive to play at that level. It's expensive to play at the level you play at. Um, when I've watched you cook, you know, that it's, you know, for someone to grow something organically and, and then, and, and, you know, not in a mass produced way is hard. And then to scale that is hard. So for me, I'm fanatical about the proper soil, the proper rootstock. But most of the guys in my shoes and gals in my shoes, when they scale a brand like I'm trying to do with Harvey and Harriet, my favorite neighbor, all they do is go out to the deep east side or into the valley, right? And then they add these shit concentrates. What's happening in wine is the same thing that happened in food. Once they found they could mass produce it, make it cheaper and use high fructose corn syrup. And, you know, my wife just did Whole30 with my daughter. Shit, you can't buy anything on Whole30, right? Yeah. Everything has, even you go to, it doesn't matter, Whole Foods. Everything that is pre-made has some form of sugar in it. It's psychotic. And so for me, the whole pitch for Harvey and Harriet, my favorite neighbor, and, and where I saw the greatness was, it was Whole30, basically. I was going to make everybody farm organically. We were going to use... Other than maybe cultured yeast, which are, you know, organic yeast we use, um, we're not, you know, and a lot of the stuff goes native too, but we like regular yeast, which is just a yeast that's already present in the vineyard anyways. So it's kind of a moot point. Um, there's there's really no native. It's came from something that's already now we have identified, most of it anyways. Um, so I found all these clay sites and I like the, uh, a specific rootstock. I like specific sunlight. I have a great team of scientists um, because information is so important. You know, information came to the food industry in a big way for the bad and for the good. You guys, you great chefs now know based on information that you can get how to raise a cow better. 
you can even, you know, MRI the damn cow to make sure, okay, is it where we want it to be? And in my industry, we all have this information in our fingertips. People claim, oh, I'm, I'm an artist. Ah, fuck, you're an artist. An artist is someone that paints or, you know, LeBron James is an artist in motion, right? A guy, I, I could train anybody to become a winemaker. Um, can you be a great one? Nah, that, that, then that's a different story, right? Um, but so I choose all the best ingredients and use a lot of science to look at the soils and all of that. And uh, in, in doing that, we know we can compete at the highest level uh, uh, with, with Napa and, and definitely with our style above Bordeaux. Yeah, I remember. I think that's fascinating because that's so true about you know where you source your ingredients, how the cow is raised, or whatever tool you're really using to create a meal. I think that's interesting, though, what you said. And I know that um, hearing you talk in other in other places where it's like you would even you would go and look in the shed, make sure they're not using like pesticides or anything that would mess with the chemistry of the grapes but you also talked about some technology that's interesting where you like you know how much water the grape is getting you know how big the berries are supposed to be how do you how do you monitor all of that what what's what does that look like because that's that is a, a very interesting combination of almost like engineering and art and science like how do you how do you it's, i guess track that it's huge. We're our most precious resource we have in the state is water and we're running out of it. Right. And, and it's a struggle farming, man, because because you need water. And so the state's doing all these mandates and, and, and taking people's rights, water rights. When I'm like, man, you, you got to remember with your water rights, your neighbor has a water right, too. You know, and if you're taking all the water the aquifer doesn't just go into your land. It goes under multiple people. And so I've tried to work with the state board and say, hey, let's monitor water in a way that's that, that people can understand. Do I need to really give the plant this water? Because so many times, Sarah, I could tell you right now, I've got one of the top water guys in town. Literally, when I leave this, I zoom out to the vineyard to meet with Mark Greenspan, who's considered the top you know, water guy in the state of California out of Davis. And, and, and we pay him uh, annually and he visits and, and then he tracks us on computer, looks at our moisture probes. We have probes that tell us we can look at when a plant drinks and how long it consumes for and when it stops. And that'll dictate, okay, hey man, we water for three hours. We only need to water for two. But more importantly, we have technology called pressure bomb, perometry, all these other mechanisms to tell us when the actual plant really needs water. And so right now I'm out there going, Mark, man, bro, I love you, but your numbers are way off. We need water. And unless I screwed up all the nutrients, sure enough, it was on me. The plant had water. It just didn't have the amount of potassium necessary to keep the leaves where I needed them or the right amount of nitrogen. And since we're minimalist farmers, we really don't want to add anything. Nitrogen, we use organic fish emulsion. So we have to find other ways to do it. So we really just don't like to do anything. But so we haven't watered. So I got all these guys and I'm bringing a shovel around. I was in vineyards all day yesterday from San Simeon to Santa Barbara looking for my, looking at my Chardonnay vineyards. And these guys are watered. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to choke someone out, man. This is fucking crazy. 
you got plants that are eight feet tall. I'm trying to shut them down so we can click, you know, go from productive to reproductive and focus on just the fruit, two life cycles of the plant, uh, uh, growth for leaves and then uh, movement of carbohydrates to, to fruit. And you guys are still growing a plant and we're trying to ripen the fruit. It is psychotic, the sheer, I don't want to say stupidity, but lack of knowledge that the industry has. It is crazy. And this technology is at everybody's fingertips. But because I use it, you know, I get, oh, he's a robot. He doesn't work by feel anymore. I mean, could you imagine walking in to Apple and saying, let's just, the iPhone 2 was good enough, man. Let's just stop there. Or, yeah, we don't really, those bugs aren't that big of a deal in, in the iPhone 3. Why would we work those out? It is, it is startling at how archaic this business is. It, it's, it goes into, I mean, the stuff people do is, well, that's because that's the way we've always done it. It's like, I'm so tired of hearing that. And I'm tired of hearing this rich, you know, rich person, aristocratic club that, you know, you have to put a suit and tie on to drink fucking wine. It should be on everybody's table every night. It should be no different than beer or a cocktail. But, you know, we've scared everybody because we talk so serious. And, you know, the chefs kind of got into that with, I don't mind fancy and foam and I don't mind the laundries, you know, that 16 course deal, but we got a little carried away in some circumstances. It just scared people. And that's the sustainability of it's kind of tapered off. And now the gastro scene has, you know, been just so that gastro pub scene has been so much more popular because it's relatable. Right. And in wine, we need to do that. And I continue to get off subject and just smack me. No, I completely agree with you where like when my husband and I started dating, I didn't know anything about wine. I was just like, I liked what I liked. And, you know, if if it was good, it was good. Um, But didn't know any of the terminology to use. And he is a psalm and just seemed like um, I think people in some circumstances are almost afraid to ask questions because they don't want to sound stupid. Um, but yeah, it definitely should be something that's a lot more relaxed and approachable. And I think that there is definitely a movement towards more of that because I don't want, like, I want to have a glass of wine at home in yoga pants. I don't want to have to feel super fancy. Yeah. And you hit it on the nose. So my wife is the same way. She doesn't look at labels at all. To this day, we've been in the business a long time, two decades. And she'll be like, okay, which bottle can I open? I'm like, man, this is California. You own 50%. So just open anything on the right or left side. It's happy. <laughs> I like, why are you asking me that? Every wine you can drink every night. I don't have a Tuesday or a Saturday wine. If I put it in there, drink it. My friends know that rule, but they got to have that same rule at their house. But I don't, you know, I hope your husband, I'm going to check him out, man. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm looking him up the second wing up. I hope he's a good song. And when I say good song, I mean, Psalms have the power to make this industry so much hipper and cooler. And I've got so many great Psalm friends. And then I got so many, I don't want to, can I say the word douchebag? I mean, they, they, yes. they, make it, they make it unfucking cool. And so the regular guy in Colorado or Nebraska is like, just give me a Jack and Coke. And what you said to start this off is, I just like what I like. And we have to remember that. It's okay to just like what you like. And if that's 30 bucks or 20 bucks, good for you. I, I, you know, we just did a DRC tasting. So DRC is the most expensive wine in the world, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, 
uh, uh, Burgundy Pinot Noir out of uh, special sites in Burgundy. Um, and I got to be honest with you. We probably had 12 bottles. This was last Thursday or Friday. There wasn't really a great bottle of wine. My, uh, what did I bring? I brought them St. Bavant, maybe 15. And, and it was one of the youngest. It was by far the best. The, the, all the expensive ones were, were crap. They were flawed. They were a mess. But we walk in programmed. You, women are, I, you know, you, I, I say this. You won't know this, but I say this daily. Trust the women. Take men should no longer allow to be songs. It should all be women because they don't bullshit. They don't lie. They come straight at it, and they they like what they like, and they give an honest opinion. So at, at, at home, all these guys are sitting there in a circle having you know what I can't say it, but a circle you know what uh, <laughs> you know, over this thirty year old wine, first growth Bordeaux, and then they hey Eric, you got to taste this man. No, you don't want to hear what I'm gonna say about it. I'm gonna ruin your night, and the women. They're like, oh, honey, you got to try this. And the women take their sip, dump it out, and go back in the kitchen and start drinking something hip and cool and fun. And it's a disease in this business. And we've got to quit faking that we like something because we're supposed to like it. Um, I do understand time and place, but why do – if your restaurant starts serving shit food, if all of a sudden – you know, Fieri's restaurants are all serving like just shit – He's done. You know, he'll get judged. People just won't show up. Why do all these famous wineries get to exist for 50, 100 years when most of them make mediocre wine? I, I don't get it. Free yeah. pass. No, it's, uh, it's definitely interesting and kind of amongst a lot of different um, industries. <laughs> Uh, so, but I do want to go back for a second to one of your Cabernet blends, my favorite neighbor that we were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, so you love the, the big, bold wines. You said you don't, you're not big on the you know, high acid wines, but that wine in particular is known for like beautiful round mouthfeel and velvety tannins, elegant, like chocolate finish. It's, it's just a big, nice, luscious wine. And I'm always curious what I taste vanilla or chocolate notes on wine. It's that's a toasting of oak barrels or do the qualities come from the stems from the grapes themselves or where, where does that kind of, um, characteristic of wine come from? Well, most of that comes from barrel, right? So you get sweeter tannins from barrels. Uh, you get a sweetness from the barrels. It doesn't, it doesn't make the wine physically uh, sweet. It just gives it a perception of sweetness. So that and malolactic fermentation, uh, uh, it's called diacetyl. You don't need to know that, but um, they give, they impart that you know, it's why most, a lot of white wines don't go through it when they want a real crisp and acidic. When you get a white wine that is more oaky and buttery, it usually goes through it. It's called secondary fermentation. So that's, that plays a big part in a red wine imparting that flavor. And then the rest of most of that comes from uh, your, your choice of barrel and the toast you put on that barrel. And then the perceived sweetness you get from the, from the wood tannins. So with that particular wine you're talking about, remember, it's uplifted, it's bright, and that's passive. So instead of it being over-the-top opulent and heavy and syrupy, that's kind of a good example, the, the both the 16 and the 17, my favorite neighbor, of what we can do here. Um, and as, as you know, I just dropped the price from 80 to 50 bucks on a vintage 
that we we've sold out of within six months every year um, for the 18 vintage. I actually dropped the price. I just see COVID is a big problem. I see that, you know, I got, if I'm going to walk the walk, I got to, uh, if I'm going to talk to talk, I got to walk the walk and have some wines more affordable, but yeah, uh, mostly diacetyl in barrels where you're going to get those, uh, that, that more vanilla chocolate could come from several different, uh, uh, several different things could come from barrel toasting. Um, you know, could come from sight, could come from heavier clay. When you get uh, a lot more chalk, you're going to get a lot more minerality out of a wine. So, Interesting. So many wine growing regions get painted with kind of a broad stroke and people assume that the wines are going to be all be kind of very similar. However, we talked a little bit earlier about the soil types, but also the microclimates can drastically influence the quality and style of the wine. Can you describe how Paso's West side differs from other areas of Paso in terms of like what the microclimates and uh, maybe weather or how, just how in, in general, aside from the soil type, it's different from the rest of Paso. Well, the folks on the East side can make great wines. They're just different wines, right? They're usually higher pH wines. Um, they, the, the soils are lower pH, so they're harder uh, uh, right out of the gate. They do get cold nights, though, and that's the beauty of all of Paso, especially the west side with our proximity to the ocean. So, you know, if you're at the top of my hill, you might be as a crow flies 16 miles from the water. And at it's usually two every day, but, geez, this July, it had been, you know, probably 11 every day. That breeze comes right off the water. And it really chills things, but it could be 94 in the day, but night might be 54. Wow. It gets you all summer long. You go outside the pass, you have to have a jacket. I closed the pool last night, the cover, and I went out there in my underwear and I was doing the, you know, the pee pee dance, jumping up and down, just kind of <laughs> my chest on my fingers on the, on the, the control switch, shutting that pool, like just freezing. And that's Paso, and that's the west side especially. Shoot, if you go down to Jack Creek, maybe two, three miles from me, um, it's crazy. The, the, you know, the rainfall they get is probably 15 more inches, and their days come down 10 degrees uh, from mine, um, and, and, and the nights even get a little bit colder. Obviously, once you get to the beach, your nights aren't generally at the beach um, as cold as we are, but yeah, it's, so we retain a lot of that acidity because of that diurnal swing where we're hot in the day and so cold at night. And it's funny because people come and they're just, Oh, past was hot. Nobody ever brings a jacket here. And <laughs> oh, nobody. And so last night I have guests in my guest house. They were by the fire the whole night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I can definitely, I can definitely see that. Definitely need to uh, consider bringing a jacket. That's a pretty significant shift from day to nighttime temperature. Paso is, you know, it's not, it's Lamborghini and Ferrari free and it's pretty much Rolex, shiny diamond dial gold Rolex free. <laughs> um, and I moved here with a Rolex and it, it sat in my drawer before I just got rid of it uh, uh, for I think 20 years. Uh, 20 years, never, never pulled it out one time and I w rolled into a restaurant the first night I was here in the restaurant and my buddy Chris Cherry goes, bro, turn down the watch, you know, big, <laughs> tiny gold watch. And I took that watch up. I never wore it again. So the greatness of Paso is 
it's it's just simple. Everyone, nobody's judged on their kind of car, um, their job. You're judged just more on character and just being a nice person. No one's judged. We, 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 I don't, we, none of our friends, we don't judge each other politically or for our views, um, nor do we shove them down each other's throat. But we just respect each other as humans. And, and we understand what one person, what may be important to this friend, maybe not to that friend. And so it's such a special place because there's, it, it's just peaceful. It, and, and no one's trying to outdo anybody. We're not financially. It's not, hey, look what I just got. Or, you know, no one's trying to one up each other. On pricing, yeah, I mean, you've seen our prices. Our for the critical acclaim, we could be in the two hundred dollar, three hundred dollar range, but I'm under a hundred bucks, you know. And and we we just we we love where we're at, and that's so that's Paso. And uh, I'll give you back your show. No, I love that, and I I think you were talking about too how you think people are going to start to realize the gift that Paso is. You have a couple hotels going up downtown. And people are are starting to realize that you know you're a major contender in in the wine world. How how do you think? Like, what's the message, and how is that getting out now? Is it word of mouth? People are telling their friends, or or how are you seeing that growing? Well, we're flooded right now during COVID, and and of course with the restrictions we've placed on ourselves for our employees and guests. So we're, we, we've worked the whole time, but we're working with masks. Um, we're, we, we test once a week. We have, we bought, you know, a thousand tests or something like that. I can't remember the number. We test everybody every week. Um, and so we, we could double our business right now. I figured when COVID, I, when COVID broke out, I, I told the team, get ready because when we open up, we're going to be packed. No one's getting on a plane. They're all going to want to drive 100 to 200 tops miles, and we're going to be wall to wall. And sure enough, man, we're sold out nonstop. We've been packed. And what people are finding out that normally would have went somewhere else is they're like, I mean, I just hear it nonstop. I look at our talk reservations, whatever it's called, I think it's talk. We're getting 20 responses today. Oh my God, people were so nice. Uh, so pleasant. We just turn the music up and we just want you to have fun. You know, we don't, I don't need to tell you that I got a hundred points here and 99 there. We just, you're either going to like the wine or you're not going to like the wine. Right. Yeah. Um, so we want to, we want you, it's your time. And I really look at it from the second you get out of the car, we're building our new kind of facility. I've got music in the parking lot going in from the second you pull in, I want you to hear hip, cool, peaceful music, whatever the style is. Just like, man, hell yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> Fuck, let's go drink some wine and eat, you know. I want you to feel like you can lower your guard. I can't control if you're going to like the wine. But what I can control is that you have a great experience, that, 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 that everybody treats you how you would want to be treated and how you would treat other people. And so we're just – you know, we're not hard salespeople. We're just nice. If you want to walk up in the vineyard or take a walk down the road, go ahead. We'll put you in the Kawasaki Mule and even drive you. You want to roll through the caves, let's go. But we just want it to be about you and your time. And that's Paso. I duck by that tasting area. 
you know, today I, I'll, I'll leave this call. I, I, I got, I got to jump on my quad and go meet Mark Greenspan, the water guy on the way. I'll go by the taste room. I won't stop because I don't have time right now, but on the way back, I'll stop in. If there's people out there. I'll just real quickly say hello. And that's, that's a daily standard, you know, and you get that at the wine race here a lot. It's, it's typical of a chef, you know, 9 PM at night coming out of the kitchen, thanking the guests, um, making that one, you know, kind of lap around that's so important. Paso does that. I love that. Everyone needs that type of vacation in their life. Yeah. And like you said, there's, there's some great places going downtown. COVID shut them down for a little bit, but one, you know, both of them will have rooftop bars. There's actually three because, uh, the, the, uh, five-star hotel Cheval downtown is expanding. So it's just, you know, everything's outdoors right now. You can go get a damn haircut outdoors. Everything's outdoors on the street in those parklets. It's just a vibe, man. We built a whole dining experience in the middle of the park. Everybody chipped in to help the restaurants to build this, to have chairs and tables and sanitation and, you know, people taking reservations. You just need to go food from one of the restaurants. It's just one of those communities. Um, everyone's got each other's back. And, and more importantly, we got each other's backs, but we got visitors' backs. We want them to we want them to feel great here um you know it it's just it's pretty unbelievable you you can leave all your fancy stuff at home when you come to pass and just be yourself and you will absolutely love it and there's shoot you're 20 minutes from the beach you're 20 minutes from the uh, two lakes on either side of you there's great san luis obispo and the beach uh uh, the beaches have great mountain and hike, uh, hiking trails. We do a lot of hiking, great mountain biking. There's a water park that's closed for the year for kids. There's a 3,500 seat outdoor music amphitheater that we have a, a booker has a box to right in the middle. It's just unbelievable. We get great acts there. Uh, it's, it's special. It's amazing. Yeah. I can't wait to visit. It sounds fantastic. Why don't you come visit and, uh, you, uh, you can cook for us and we'll, we'll cut, we'll cut some sort of deal. We'll, we'll try to find a way to make your lodging problems go away. And, uh, you, you can make my, uh, you can make some of me and some other winemakers, uh, hunger problems go away. Does that sound, uh, can you sounds like, sounds like a deal to me. All right. All right. So to jump back, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your wines too. Um, in your vineyards, how do you determine which grape varietals to plant? Like for instance, why, why did you choose to grow Syrah on certain sites versus Cab? So the beauty of Paso and why Stefan came here, because of course in Bordeaux, you're, you're forced to plant certain varietals. Um, in Napa, you're pretty much forced as a red varietal to plant, plant Cabernet because that's where your money's at. If you plant something else that you can only get $80 for, it, it, it can hurt you. There are renegades there that I love that say, I'm going to plant whatever the hell I want. But Paso is all renegade, guys. It's just the Wild West. And so if I like something and the soil's right um, and the temperature's right, and I base it, you know, we're a Mediterranean climate, I base it on what thrives in those climates – I'll plant it. Like, so I thought Tempranillo would do great in the chalk. And it turns out that, you know, our Tempranillo sells out in the snap of a fingers immediately get, you know, the list gobbles it up immediately. It's this big, dense, but not overly tannic Tempranillo. They're used to very thin Spanish Tempranillos. So I thought, Hey, one acre of Tempranillo would be, you know, 
awesome. And I think it'll do incredible if it doesn't all graft it over. And so, you know, in a lot of the chalk, I want Grenache and, 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 and Mervedra and uh, Syrah. Um, but we're all chalk at Booker. So really I got to grow my Roussan in it, my Viognier in it. I don't grow Cabernet in it. I tried. It wasn't, it, it just, there, there's reasons of too much sunlight. Um, Cabernet likes fertile soil and a bigger canopy. Um, and, and it didn't do well. So I choose based on a lot of history, a lot of research. And then I research obviously the clone and rootstock that I'm going to use based on what's done great in this style of climate. What we found out is we do a lot really well. We do some things very poorly as well, but our diversity, like I'll match our Tempranillo up to any in the state. Um, and the consumer and the critics, you know, they're the judge of that. And, and so they've spoken for, you know, 15 years on that. Um, Syrah, it's Syrah and Grenache. Syrah, you can grow in a lot of places. Grenache is difficult. This is an extraordinarily special place for Grenache. Syrah, you can do Syrah great in a lot of places. It's kind of like Cab. You can you can do great Cabernet in several places. Grenache in Paso Robles on the chalky slopes, it is, uh, it's a special deal. Dynamite. So I, it was actually your 2013 Syrah fracture, speaking of Syrah, that received highest praise from the most famous wine critic, Robert Parker. When you received that score, how did that affect Booker Wines? Uh, it didn't affect us at all. Um, we had already been getting, you know, scoring really high from a critical standpoint. So we had pretty much maximized that world of buyers. Um, it's a very small world. That's why most of those supposed, you know, so-called cult wineries, they're so small because uh, if they grow bigger, only so many people follow Parker. Um, Jeff Dunnick's a new guy that I like. He used to work at Parker. His, and the reason I like him, A, he's just a super human being, but his palate is more in tune with my style of wine. So you got to remember that also. Just same in restaurant business. There's there's good wine, right? You 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 have your friends. You just know they're great chefs. Now they might not match up perfectly to a certain food critic that doesn't stylistically like you know maybe heavier sauces. Um, they they're not going to match up as well. So we just throw it all out there to all of them, and you know you, you don't always like what they say, but fuck it, it is what it is. But oh five, Robert Parker changed our trajectory when he scored us the highest scores outside of Sinequinon on the central coast that year, that changed our trajectory because immediately we started gobbling up all those followers of his. Um, but now, you know, most of the critic followers of, of, of wine spectator, Parker, Dunnick, um, Venuous, they, they know the wine. Um, and that's such a tiny world. And I wanted to get outside that world. Uh, I really did. I wanted to get outside that world to people that have never heard of any of those people. Because that, believe it or not, is probably 95% of the, of the wine drinking population. Yeah, no, it is. But to the people who have heard of it and trying to learn more about wine, those scores definitely can drive a consumer's decision to buy it. Well, scores, it, it's kind of like reviewing a restaurant. Most yeah. critics, I've got, although I have... For one of the best wines I ever made, I had one critic, you know, give it such a shitty score. I'm like, I can't submit to this guy. This He's so far off base. This is so much better than the last three vintages. And he was new to that wine. But for the most part, you know, 
great wineries don't get bad scores. You might not get the score you think you deserved, uh, but you know who the fuck? Who are you to think? You know, you know. Of course, you think, oh, I might get a ninety-nine or a hundred for this, and then you get this ninety-four, and you're like pissed. What are you pissed about? Ninety-four is such a great score. So you got to be a realist. Um, but the critics are great for that because they do give you a roadmap to find new wines. But you know who else can do that? Your husband. You know who else can do it? Your buyer at Total. Your buyer at your your local uh, pavilions. You know that's where I started. We had a pavilions in Laguna Beach. I used to run across PCH. I'd look both ways and then no traffic sprint because I could only buy one to two bottles at a time. This guy would, was, he was my genius, man. He nailed, he rarely missed. So he was my Jeb Dunnick. He was my Robert Parker. And, um, you know, your husband has that ability. And that's the beauty of Psalms is they really, especially high volume restaurants, they have the ability to show these people to get them a little outside their box. Where where Psalms make that mistake is when they take them too far out and they sell them something with, you know, 8% alcohol, 11% alcohol, super acidic. When that person just told them, hey, I like big wines. Um, But so the critics, they do provide, like you said, a great roadmap. They do the same that the the restaurant critics. You know, rarely does a great restaurant get absolutely panned. They might not get what they thought, but you don't see great chefs getting, at least the ones that I follow, don't get – you know, absolutely steamrolled. Unless they, they, unless it was a hands-off licensee deal and they deserved it. <laughs> absolutely. So there, there's a lot of talk that New World wine doesn't have the ageability that wines of France and Italy and other wine-growing regions in Europe have. I think I know what the answer to this is, but what are your thoughts on just that preconceived notion? You want my thoughts or do you want facts? Your call. I can let's, give go you bo- let's do both. Yes. So I'm going to give you the facts. It, it's the biggest bullshit. The wool's been pulled over our eyes. Um, the only reason that if we walk backwards and become students of the game and we learn our history, the only reason old wines were aged is because they were shitty winemakers. They didn't have technology. They didn't understand things. They were new just like anything else. Phones used to be a big brick, right? Well, they used to be on your wall. Well, actually, no. You used to have to call the operator, and then she connected you to some funny name, uh, uh, you know, letters and all that stuff. We now have technology. We know how to make wine at uber high levels. We're getting better every day. The fact that old world wines, they, they were made, you remember, a lot of these guys had to go to war. And if the war started in September or August, they picked early. Well, there was so much acid sometimes so much green pyrazine in the wine uh, 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 and no alcohol, these wines were unconsumable for 20 years. And so when the fancy British press and the French, oh, this wine is a baby, it needs 20 years. It's just, it's so much bullshit. It's just laughable. A wine is great when you, uh, when, when you think it's great. A wine should be immediately consumable off the bottling truck. And it should be able to age for 30 years with the technology, with oxygen that we now know, with lower VAs, things of this nature. There's four reasons a wine should be able to age for 30 years. There are some vintages that oxidize slightly out in the vineyard. Uh, 15 did that. Um, But it's a bullshit. It's just a factual lie that they continue to tell. And like they used to invite me to speak in France and they don't invite me anymore. I've, I've exposed that shit and they want me to be nice, but... Just don't ask the question then because it's a lie. Wine doesn't 
Wine only gets better with age to the person who thinks it's better. And 99% of the American population thinks a new wine is better than an old wine. And if you don't believe me, I test you and your husband because he's a psalm. I know he's got older wines in the house. Go to a party this weekend with your friends. Open some 15 and 20-year-old wines and then open up a couple wines that are 18, 17, and 16. And you ask your friends at the end of the night, what did you really like better? They may appreciate the old wines. So, I mean, put it this way, sir. I I hate to put it this way, but I'm going to go. You can edit this out. I'm a lot older than you are. I go to the mirror and I look at myself and I got some shit going on, right? I mean, I'm like, God damn, what happened to me? Um, We don't look as good, right? We don't look as good naked in the mirror at 90 as we do at 18, 20, 25. Shit, we don't look as good at 35. So wine's a lot the same way. It changes and it evolves. Now, my wife's 50 and I still see her the exact same way and love her. Uh, uh, for that. And, and I've loved how the two of us have evolved. But the fact is, is it, it's a myth to think that a wine gets better. That's a subjective statement. It's, it's, it's a fucking bullshit comment made by the, the, the British press and the French. Um, and the same with old vines. That, that's a lie. An old vine is dinged up. It has problem with vascular transfer through the xylem tissue. A new wine is expressive. It's got clean, healthy bones. It's why there's no, you know, it's why NBA players usually stop at about 30. LeBron's a freak. Kobe was a freak. But for the most part, you're on the downswing. Athletes usually stop in most sports at, at I think, 28, 29. Some get to go to 36. Um, so a vine is the same way. It gets so beat up that, oh, these vines are babies. The 100-year-old vines are better. No, they just don't as allow, as allow as much expression and vibrancy but a winemaker control, can control that by picking earlier or watering less or, or more, depending on the site, or uh, not as much sunlight or more sunlight, again, depending on the style. So anyways, it's all a myth. None of it's true. I think that's fascinating. And I like your analogies because it 100% makes sense. Well, it's just these are, these are factual scientific things. And now, again, if your friends, I have one buddy and one buddy only, uh, a guy down there in Solana Beach, Chuck, uh, uh, Chuck Smith, great guy. He loves secondary, tertiary flavors, weird, awkward mushroom, you know, all that shit. Chuck wants bottles 20 years old. That At the same party I'm with, with another San Diego guy, David Wells, Boomer, the former New York Yankee pitcher, you know, Boomer likes young wine. And so we'll open old and new and the, the, the new bottle gets smoked. Chuck is all over the old bottle. Now, he's not lying about it. Most people lie about it. Oh, my God, this is so good. Again, what do we say at the start of this podcast? We're told in wine that we're supposed to like old wines. We're supposed to like legacy and historic wineries. Why? Why are we told this? It's just just no truth to it. Like what you like. Absolutely. Don't buy the advertisement. Just like what you like. Out of all of the varietals that you grow, do you have a favorite? You know, my two favorites are Syrah and Grenache. Uh, They just really are. Grenache is very difficult. Syrah is very easy. Um, Syrah and Grenache are my favorite. I got to be honest with you. Um, You know, that, that I grow probably... Shard 
uh, or or Vion and Rusan would come in equally because I like them more combined than separate. Chard uh, uh, and Cab also they're going to come in, you know, around the Rusan and Vion. But but my my special to my heart um, because Vion or Grenache takes so much effort to be great. Um, most of it's too jammy and super ripe and and you know or sweet. Uh, Grenache is very very difficult but for your people that follow you the way you and your husband should explain Grenache to people it just it's the Pinot Noir of their own right it's elegant light strawberries red fruit it makes it easy because people still think of white Grenache as like rosé um that's you know no one ever heard of Grenache oh I thought this was a white grape and you know because people used to use Grenache just strictly for rosé Grenache is so beautiful. It's more diverse than Pinot. It can get big, like Torin or like Sinequinon, or it can be a lot more elegant, finesseful, like Rayos, um, or in between, like the Booker, uh, my Ripper. Um, so there's just, and it's good with stems. It's good without stems. Uh, it's just, it, it, it's unbelievable the diversity of it and the difficulty of it. Um, and Syrah is just easy shit. Syrah, you doing your sleep. <laughs> You've had a few label changes recently, which I'm also fond of your old, older labels, which paid homage to your farm workers. Why the shift and what are some of your favorites? Oh, that was such a bummer. Well, my favorite was Stefan because he was my true favorite neighbor. But uh, seeing Angelica kind of with her eyes closed and head back is, is such a favorite of mine because she's such that's who she is. Her head was kind of back. She's smiling. Her eyes were closed. And Greg Gorman, the legendary photographer out of L.A., um, he cut, captured it. Um, that she was my, you know, that's so special. And she's so she, you know, she's a special part of our family. She works here, and she's just great. Um, the the reason for the change was sad, man. That that people that had bought my favorite neighbor, my favorite neighbor was one of those high flyers, and I guess you know people collectors bought it, whatever that, you know, kind of jerk off stuff is. And, and, and I buy wines to drink, but, and so they, you know, a bunch of hoity-toity people, uh, you know, bought that wine. And so the, the people that bought it and sold it to them, when they saw a bunch of strange faces, they said, Hey, our buyers don't like this new label. I don't want to say it was a racist thing. I think that what my, what I think happened, <clears throat> it happened in New York and California. That's why I don't, you know, those are very liberal states, right? I think it was more that uh, they thought it was cartoony, like, you know, like the, the, you know, these Oren Swift wines with, you know, the knuckles and the machete and the legs spread on the car. Oh, that's smoke and mirror shit. That's, you know, that's all marketing shit. That's not my gig. And to salute on that, by the way, to Gallo, but it's not what we do. Um, I think they maybe grouped us in with that. You know, all those sugar wines, uh, all the sweet wines with the mega purple and the port and all that. And those guys, that's what they're doing. It's just, how do I create this label to attract that person? And then that person has it and they're like, oh my God. It's no different than what the food industry did with high fructose corn syrup when we had all that sugar and then we were allowed to rename it and it went into cereals and foods and then they put nine essential vitamins on the boxes and colored the boxes and, you know, kids would, mommy, I want this. And they grab, oh, it's got nine essential vitamins and uh, uh, nutrients, you know, got to get this. 
And it's a dupe deal. And so I think maybe I got grouped into that, but I, I can't tell you exactly. That was kind of a, well, again, a long-winded, it broke my heart, I'll tell you that much, because I wanted to, I wanted everybody that touched the wine, whether it was a cork salesperson, a salesperson out in the field, a farm worker, a winemaker. I wanted people that don't get glorified to get glorified. And that was the concept behind it. And uh, my two biggest markets, uh, you know, they, they talked me out of it. And I gave in because at the end of the day, I'm not in business to make life hard on your husband selling the wine, on the wine buyer selling the wine, on, um, you know, uh, uh, high-end retail shops. I, I'm not big on – I don't want their job to be impossible. Yeah. So last question. Napa wasn't always well-known wine-growing region until the judgment of Paris in 1976. Um, but have you ever thought of something doing or of doing something similar with Paso, but instead facing off against some of the maybe quintessential Syrahs from Hermitage or Cote Roti? Did you, sir, did you really just try to say Cote Roti in a French accent? I, it, was, it was a little more German though. I did not try and say it in a French accent. Every time I say a Spanish word, trust me, I try to say it in a Spanish accent. My wife reminds me how bad it is. If I say something Irish, I say it in an Irish accent. Um, but uh, yeah, so what I'm going to do on on uh, on one of our deals, I'm going to line up a blind tasting against all these two hundred to five hundred dollar wines from Napa, from France, from everywhere. And I'm going to invite a couple Psalms, a couple restaurant buyers, a couple normal people off the street drinkers, um, and then a couple people in the wine industry. And we're going to sit around a table and I'm going to prove to the world. I already know the result because we, we do it all the time. I'm going to prove that you can make a 30 and a $50 bottle of wine and blind it against some of these two, $300 bottles. I was at a dinner and I was with a group that uh, I'm not going to mention who they are, but they were a big wine company and they brought their homage bottle and it was 300 bucks. And I said, cool, you guys got that. I'm going to bring Harvey and Harriet 30 bucks. Let's blind them and see how they go. Five people at the table, all five chose uh, the Harvey and Harriet. Um, I have a much more consumer friendly palate and, you know, their wine was very dusty and tannic and green, heavy bell pepper and, and, and like asparagus, just pyrazines, too much green canopy and probably too much water in early season, et cetera. So it, it was startling. 10% was the cost. Five people at the table, all five chose uh, the, the $30 bottle. And so I already know how these things are going to shape out. Um, so I'm going to grab a couple of my friends' bottles that are 50 and 60 bucks. It's hard once you get below 30 to find great wines. It just really is. That's why I went to 30. I couldn't even find a good bottle at 30. So I said, you know where I'm going to go? I'm going to go to 30 because all the bottles at 30 are manipulated. They're all sugar. They're all fake wines. They're not real. And so I said, I'm going to go to 30 because I got a total addressable market that's so much greater. And I'll work with my growers and they'll work with me, which they have, to, to make this deal happen. So once you're at below that, man, I feel bad for the United States. That's why my next project will probably be trying to come in at that 20 range, getting closer to where most Americans are at. Because um, otherwise, they're just priced out of the market. It's a have and have not deal. 
No, definitely. Can we actually talk a little bit about that? You know, you mentioned 30 being kind of the the cutoff. Um, and this will be our last question. I know we're, we're running short on time. Um, just how you know, we do a lot of blinding here, um, tasting wines, especially with, you know, everything going on. But um, there to us or to me, like, you can just tell when a wine is disjointed, when it's acidified, when there's, you know, added extracts to it what are some of the the things that you look for in terms of like a a wine being honest and being true to itself just kind of a smoothness and transition from the approach to the mid palate to the finish or what are some of those telltale signs that wine has been manipulated with the amount of port and mega purple being used, if the wine's really black in your glass and it's starting to stain your glass, it's probably got, and if it, if, if then you drink it and it's sweet, it's, it's, it's manipulated. It's, it's, it's shit. Um, and, and you shouldn't support those people. They're just, because everybody that sits down has a love affair with wine. There's nobody, I don't care if you're buying an $8 bottle, that guy or gal in their kitchen when they get home from work or when they, they they finally get the kids to do what they're doing and they pull that cork, they're envisioning, oh my God, I get my beautiful white wine. I'm so excited. They envision vineyards. They envision peace, serenity. And and they're getting duped, man. It just makes me so mad. And so I look for first of all that if it's that over extracted, like sickeningly dark color. And then if it tastes sweet in my mouth, I know the wine's a fake wine. Um if 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 it's if it's too simple, how am I going to explain what I call an airplane wine? Like a lot of these airplane wines you have, they are they're they're all just bulk juice. A lot of them from France that no one wanted, and so they're blended and negotiated. Uh, they're negotiated labels, and they're simple. They like they taste just like grape juice that happens to have a little alcohol. A lot of those aren't manipulated. They're just not to me, great wines, but I would take those wines because they don't do a lot of manipulation in France. If you're going to drink cheap, don't ever hesitate to drink French. And I know we want to support America, but at least, you know, usually that they're not allowed to add all these additives. Acidulation is a lot harder because if it's from Paso, it might have a pop of acid. If it's Napa and, and, and it's just too tangy, too tart, too much lift at the end and a short finish, they most Napa guys have to acidulate. They have to pinch it with a little acid because they have higher pH soils. There's nothing wrong with that. They're not. They, that's not to me a real manipulation. They're using, you know, they're using a natural product. If they want to start running the rat poison, Velcrin or anything like that through it, then then then, then I don't like it. I don't I, I don't want that stuff in my body. And if they're adding all kinds of, you know, just the additives, it, it it's. There's so many things these winemakers do, and they they, they have no reason to do them. Um, but they're very hard to identify. So I wish I could tell you. I look for sweetness. If the wine's sweet, it's crap. If it's overly dark and staining my glass badly, then it's crap. Those are really the first two things to look for. I'm not going to throw any names under the bus, but that's I look for sweetness, acidulation, um, and other additives are just very difficult, and they're difficult for me to explain. No, I think that's a, that's very interesting. Definitely something to be on the lookout for the color and then the sweetness because I definitely 
you know, we've all had some of those wines that uh, definitely aren't necessarily a true representation of what wine is, which is wine's a love affair, product. right? It, it's how you are in food. Where's my product from? Oh my God, this gal, she grows the best tomatoes. And, and this guy, his squash ranches, you know, the stuff he's doing is squash blossoms and blah, blah, blah. You get so into that. With wine, that's, that's the love affair with wine. We want to get back to that. Even on larger scaled brands, get, you, you can always do it right. And, um, you know, and, and, and that's the love affair with wine that people think they're getting. And we're just losing ourselves in this business. Absolutely. Well, Eric, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a really fascinating podcast episode and I cannot wait to get up to Paso. It sounds amazing. Well, uh, you know, uh, you and I have a deal and uh, you're, uh, you got to do the cooking. I'll provide the uh, arrangements. Your husband can kind of walk us through some wine so we can make this, uh, make it work and make it fun. Sounds like a plan. And I can't wait to to see what happens with your blind tasting of of your wines against other, you know, more classic or whatever you want to call it um, varietals. I'm really excited to see what you're doing up there. It's pretty phenomenal. Cool. I appreciate it, Sarah. Keep up the great work. The, 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 the podcasts are great. It's keeping a lot of people uh, very excited and busy and um, I know your Instagram account uh, does the same thing. You got a great following, and uh, you put, you, your content is just so great. Content's king, and so keep it up. Keep us entertained. We love it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Cheers. Have a great day. Cheers. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review. It would mean the world. We're still new and growing, so all reviews and feedback is greatly appreciated and helps. Share this episode with your friends that you think would enjoy the information we share. You can also follow us on Instagram at Everyday Food and Wine or my personal page at Sarah underscore Faraday. That's S-A-R-A-H underscore F-A-H-E-R-T-Y. Please also be sure to follow Booker vineyards for the latest projects they have going on at booker vineyard b-o-o-k-e-r-v-i-n-e-y-a-r-d also don't forget to join for live wine tasting on my personal instagram page where we sit down every single week and explore new things that the wine world has to offer as well as a ton of wines that you definitely don't want to miss out on stay tuned for our next episode where i sit down with a man who is responsible for the founding of multiple renowned Napa wineries and has been dubbed the God of Cabernet, Robert Foley.